So here is what I'm really coming to love about the medium of podcasting. Amazing guests like Robert White, who I have on the show today. Welcome, Robert. We've already got a fan of yours commenting, which is fantastic. But what I've come to love about this medium is you expand the connections to this world. So in another show that I do for a business that I own, I had a famous Emmy-nominated groundhog on that did a commercial with Bill Murray for the Super Bowl a few years ago. Fantastic episode yesterday. And today, Robert White, who's impacted over a million people with his teachings, with his learnings and his experiences, is also connected to the late, great John Denver. So Robert, man, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you on today. I love these connections that this medium affords us to make. It's wonderful to be with you, Jeff. And I noticed you had a prior guest, uh, Tara Watterson, one of my absolute favorite people in the world, and somebody yeah. who's really making a difference with with uh, educating children. So it it'll be interesting to see where this goes. Yeah, for sure. Well, Tara's actually watching. I, I haven't had Tara as a guest, but sounds like I should. So she's commenting in. So you'll see that throughout the show because we live stream LinkedIn, YouTube, and Facebook. So it's out on multiple channels. Uh, simultaneous. So we'll always have people kind of commenting. And my wonderful producer, Chris from Cast Ahead, he'll be flashing that in. If we have questions, we'll we'll try to answer them as close to live as we can. So if you're commenting, we may be midstream, mid-thought. We'll get to you at some point throughout the show. But Robert, so you're a pioneer in the transformational, personal transformational growth uh, realm of teaching. Uh, before we jump in and like talk about the John Denver connection and you know, kind of bringing yourself back up from losing it all, let's first set the table with what do we exactly mean by personal transformational growth? Well, one way to talk about it is, uh, first of all, that uh, I'm not a believer in step-by-step growth. I think our natural-born resistance to change stops many of us from the kind of growth we really want to live that big ticket life or, you know, my expression, living an extraordinary life, uh, which basically I think says the same thing. Uh, So uh, what it takes for us to change generally is uh, some kind of a shock. A baby is born. I think uh, anybody that's had a child knows that everything changes in that moment that you're dealing with that newborn baby. Uh, a divorce or a death in the family or some shocking thing, a, a car accident. Uh, these are things that shake us up, shake us out of the belief system that we are operating from and allows us to have a new perspective. So transformation is uh, an experience. It's something that changes our perspective of who we are and how we operate in the world. So that's that's been, first of all, a, an experience for me in my late 20s that, that you know, sounds like a, the all-time cliche, but it, it changed my life. And then I've had the absolute privilege of uh, exposing other people to those kinds of experiences. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, listen, I think, uh, I don't think there's anything cliche about uh, creating a family uh, with yourself, with your partner, with your spouse. I, you know, I think family's the, the greatest thing we can do as as people, as a, a you know, in the human experiment, so to say, because um, without it, the experiment ends, right? I mean, we have to we have to grow our family. It's, it's just kind of the way it goes. But um, so, uh, I love that you touched on that. I think we're we're going to go right 
right into that. You, one of the things that your career and the, uh, your success has allowed you to do is to adopt uh, a couple children, two children with special needs. Talk about that. Why you did that. God or the stars, the moon or, or, you know, whatever greater power uh, was involved because we thought we were just at first just rescuing a little boy who was in trouble and about to go into permanent foster care. Um, and it was like we couldn't do anything else. That, that doesn't sound very enlightened, but it, it really felt that way. Like we just couldn't bear the thought of, of what was ahead of him if we had not acted. And then later, uh, it, his mother was a, a multiple drug abusing topless dancer prostitute and she got pregnant again uh three years later so we we also adopted uh our son levi's sister birth sister so that's how uh, because we knew what was ahead of her if we didn't act once again now yeah. since then we've learned a lot about attachment disorder about being born addicted to crack you know a bunch of things that in my lifetime i thought i'd i'd never be exposed to it never occurred to me that people would do that to a child, but they, people, some people are caught up in drugs or, or mental illness or whatever. And the, the number of those kids out there in the world is unfortunately very large. So yeah, we came to the rescue. I think it was significant that uh, my former wife and I both left home at 14 because of abuse. We, uh, and, and so when we came together, we had some shared history. And I think that those children helped us heal. So there's a selfish aspect to the adoption in that we learned so much from the process of parenting uh, Levi and Emily. Yeah, well, you're the second guest. And I mean, I'm 44 episodes in um, to the Big Ticket Life show here. Uh, you're, you're my second guest that's, and, I, and there might have been others that just didn't come up in conversation, who has chosen to either foster and or adopt and, and kind of stood in that gap and stepped in to help, uh, to help where you see an immense need. And I think as leaders, as business owners, as successful individuals, I think that should be one of those byproducts you look to do. Now, maybe for you, it's not adoption. Maybe it's not something, because that is a major, that's a major commitment. It's a major uh, extension of whatever plan you may have for your family or for your, you know, for your life. But there's all kinds of other opportunities in this world. So I'd be remiss to not touch on that because I, I think there's, you know, I, I have a saying, um, the idea is to shift from success to significance in life. And you made, you made that, you made that significant moment for Levi and his, his sister, um, that was a significant moment for them. And, and we need as leaders, if you're going to be extraordinary, right? Live an extraordinary life, as you like to say, I think we got to look for those moments of significance for sure. Um, so kudos to you for standing in that gap. Uh, you know, just being a bit awake, perhaps, I think most people care and, and want a better world, want, and that, that has to start where you live, you know, not in mm -hmm. some high-minded statement of your noble truth, but but rather in your action, in in the decisions that you make. And uh, so, I mean, it is not something to be taken lightly. I I can't. I, we could spend this entire show talk easily talking about what we learned 
personally and the value to us uh, personally and to our family. And it was tough. You know, we had a lot of really rough periods and, and, uh, and some of that, frankly, still continues today. So it, it's, it's not a, a decision to be taken lightly. However, there's a huge need. And, you know, these are the people that are going to create our future, these children. So, yeah, if you do nothing more than look for a teenage foster child that needs to have an outing once in a while, that needs to go to the zoo, that needs to go on a little trip with you. Uh, a good friend of mine, Susan Hart's been doing that with a, a, a young woman for many years. She, uh, Susan did not did not have children. So it's kind of an adoption. <laughs> right. Way. Right. She includes, yeah. She includes this young woman in her life. And uh, they've become, obviously, extremely close friends also. But there are many, many ways to contribute. Yeah, yeah. But then, and, and you're 100% right. I mean, to, to sit back and, and not, not actively think about how you can impact your local community, and especially if that community is part and parcel of your success, your business success, or your customers, or your patients, or your uh, clients. Like, if you're not thinking that way, that's, that's a moment of leadership where you can learn and improve, right? I think that's a very important. Uh, in addition to personal growth, you know, I, I, in, our, in the pre-show, we talked a bit about, uh, with my company, I had, you know, 70 full-time experiential trainers and another 50 on contract. And some people say that, that working with trainers is like herding cats. You know, they, <laughs> they have big personalities. Yeah. And a few of them are borderline or full-on narcissistic personality disorder. Well, the biggest lesson I've learned about working with those people, I learned from working with uh, Levi, who had uh, stage four attachment disorder and mm. was, was pretty dysfunctional at that time. By the way, Levi's turned out really great. He's married. He has, uh, he's a college awesome. grad. He's, he's a, uh, a wildland firefighter supervisor. Uh, he's out there doing, oh, neat. doing that really dangerous work that makes me nervous. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and uh, uh, married with two wonderful children. I mean, his oh, life turned out incredibly, but it was a rough, rough journey along the way to that. Yeah, and I yeah. learned so much about managing trainers by learning to be a different kind of parent to uh, to Levi. Yeah, I mean that that's just such a fantastic story right there to to uh, impact Levi's life, and that and really you've impacted three other lives, and then the lives that his wife and himself and the children are going to talk. I mean, just that's, that's the point. Like for me, that's a big ticket life. Like that's that shift from success to significance that had that not happened, at least three other people would not be impacted in the way that they are today. Uh, plus through the lens of Levi, uh, you're able to lead your training team differently in an improved and likely better way. Um, so talk about, I mean, 70 trainers on staff and 50 others. So a team of 120, that's a big team. And I often talk about the folks that I work with, like we need to approach our process objectively. The, the, like waking up, especially in a sales environment, right? Like, so treating your prospect sub subject to how you're feeling that morning, how your morning went at home, the car ride in, 
uh, how the first phone call went to the next phone call or the first up to the second up. A lot of subjectivity comes into the sales process, the presentation process, the opportunity to impact. How did you manage? Like, let's th- start digging into managing a team that big. And I'm guessing it was not not just a big team, but it was international, right? You because you do business in Hong Kong, all over the world. Let's dig into that a little bit. Well, it. Uh... I'm an opportunist, I think, more than anything, and an entrepreneur. So I was just looking for the next space that I was, that the opportunity that appeared before me and and to jump into. I have many faults. I'm a long way from the perfect person. But I think uh, a strength that I have is I do sort for opportunity. Uh, I Mm. sort for what's possible and for what's next for me and where I can contribute. So... Uh, you know, in my late 20s, I went through one of these early human potential movement trainings. It did, in fact, change my life for the better. And uh, uh, life just got better for me. And I started enrolling other people. Oh, uh, <laughs> that's, I didn't know you had this picture. That That's a, uh, oh, that's from my video. Okay. Uh, yeah. yeah. It, I had these incredible experiences after that training. And that led to serving for for four years as president of one of the pioneers in the personal development training industry, Mind Dynamics. And when the ownership changed there and it was no longer a good place for me to be, I founded a company called LifeSpring in the U.S. Uh, That experience didn't last very long. LifeSpring went on to graduate a half a million people and, and be in 17 cities in the United States, did some great work. And uh, uh, I took an opportunity to go to Asia. So we became the largest training company in Asia, the second largest in the world, uh, 240 full-time staff in, in five countries, and uh, a real blessing in my life. I mean, lots of hard work, lots of uh, missteps and failures and learning and, and wonderful people, incredible people that were attracted to our work, uh, and, and especially that that join my staff. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, quite the start into into that niche, into that realm of uh, personal development and, and transformational growth. Um, so you, yeah, we touched, we, we brought up a minute ago about, um, you know, the, you know, the, the aspect of childhood abuse and, and poverty and trauma and things like that. You have a similar start. And I think for people to understand, you don't always need those things to be a part of a success recipe to be wildly successful, but it is a commonality um, amongst a lot of successful people. So why do you think that is? What is it about that rough start from your perspective that you've seen that allows people to succeed in life? You know, you mentioned John Denver earlier and if you take a look at John wrote 200 songs, he recorded over 300 and he had three themes. If you take a look at his, his musical output, one was certainly about nature. Uh, you know, the, the wind, the, the water, the, the trees entered so many of his songs. And, uh, uh, one third, uh, was about love, about falling into love and falling out of love. His personal adventures reflected in his songs. And uh, But the third area was our area, 
it was about the human spirit. And I think within all of us, there is that longing uh, to matter in the world, to make a difference, to contribute. Uh, in some cases, it just shows up as survival. And certainly food, clothing, and shelter is pretty much the basic foundation of everything. But then it might move on from survival to maintenance, to getting that handled, you know, to getting some certainty about that food, clothing, and shelter, about your life, a routine, a job. And some people, it's a job or a successful business. Uh, and But once that's handled, I think there's a natural human longing to matter, to be recognized, to be uh, a celebration of your uniqueness. One of my friends, Arjun Sen, is a really brilliant guy, and he talks about how with seven billion people on the planet, we are each one of one. We are unique. And the, the, I think there's a, just a natural flow toward uh, expressing that uniqueness in the world. And it might be being a really great mom. It might be in some craft. It might be in art. It might be in music. It might be in business success. That whatever it is that that we were born to live into the world, uh, that we that we fully express that. I think it's just natural. And yes, uh, you know, I had a rough beginning, but if I look back, now my mother was a, uh, a, a an angry, violent woman who had a lot of children and really didn't like children. <laughs> you know, mm. Never quite understood that one, but uh, she was also a model of hard work. She was widowed three times. You know, she oh, survived. Wow. She she made sure there was clothing on our back, even if it was made from feed sacks. And, and I did go to school in my first two years <laughs> wearing feed sack clothing. That's something that I think a lot of younger people don't even know about. But yeah, wow, that's um, you know I remember uh, just a quick little addition to that, I remember going to school, uh, having gotten clothes from Goodwill and made fun of because the popular kid in school recognized it as his that were donated from a year or two prior. Uh, but yeah, the feed sack thing, that's... Um, and but out, of, out of all of that, you know, I, she was an example of hard work and of personal responsibility and uh, of uh, I will not be knocked down. No matter what happens, I will survive. And I, I didn't realize I was learning that, but that was the example that I saw along with the abuse and, and criticism and all of that. But I think people make a choice. Uh, and I'm being in a, an extremely uh, simplified version of life here, uh, is that some people exposed to that retreat uh, or drift into alcohol or drugs or you know, become that hidden, hidden person. Uh, other people fight against it, and I'm that person. Uh, I made a decision that informed my life for a long time, and that simple decision was, I will never be poor again. And mm. uh, I actually, Jeff, I took that all the way to a 14,500-square-foot home on 76 acres in Aspen, my own Jeff, and you know, a life that everybody dreams of. Now, so that's the good news. It, it led to huge success because what, the way I translated I'll never be poor again was I'll show you that, you know, right. I'm going to I'm gonna show you that I'm not that 
poor kid that everybody teased, you know? And so that, yeah. the, the downside of that, by the way, is I started waking up in that beautiful home and, and you know, skiing 80 days a year and just, you know, fully enjoyed my life. I started waking up mornings thinking, God put me here for some reason that I haven't yet fulfilled. Something's mm. still missing. And what the, and that's the subtitle of my book. Is It's about uh, success, yes. But it's also about joy and fulfillment. That That's what was missing in my life when I was uh, wealthier than I ever imagined I could be, was the joy and fulfillment. I wasn't smiling enough. I wasn't enjoying all of that fully. Uh, and mm -hmm. uh, so that's been my last ten years. I've been I've been working on joy. Yeah, good for you. I mean, that's a it's a common thread out there. People will reach they reach what they feel is their pinnacle, and then they get up there, and it's pretty lonely. It's it's unhappy. It's not fulfilling. Um, and then they march back down to go find it. Uh, it's a pretty common thread. You know, I think you know one thing that I often talk about. And I try to remind people of, and I remind myself of it because I've got, you know, my, my childhood, my family upbringing through early teenage years, man, it could be a six part lifetime mini series. Um, but I've come as of late to think of these things don't happen to us. They happen for us, right? These experiences create, uh, I have this concept that I speak to of this shield, right? And we can carry that shield. We can bring it around to create that space and bring others in that have had these similar struggles and say, you know what? We can talk about this stuff. We can grow from this stuff. We can decide we're never going to be poor. Uh, and I think in that, it really becomes um, a, a really cool place to have others kind of rally around you because so many leaders, I think, feel lonely. Is that something you've come across where they just feel this loneliness of no one understands me, I'm, I'm, you know, maybe they're on the verge of falling back to an addiction, the verge of a failing marriage, the verge of a bankruptcy. And I think, I think you've experienced most, if not all of those. So let's dig into that about you're not all, you're not out there all along. You know, my, I, I, I mentioned uh, earlier with you in our personal conversation that I just returned from a week in Aspen, Colorado, celebrating the 25th anniversary of my friend John Denver's death. And, uh, uh, I did a, I, I wrote a, uh, I have this little thing I do weekly called an extraordinary minute. And I wrote about that and what it triggered for me. And one of the things that triggered was from a John Denver song. And I can, and I can quote from the song. It's, uh, it's called Sweet Surrender. And it starts by saying, lost and alone on a forgotten highway, traveled by many, remembered by few. Hmm. And, you know, I work with senior executives, people that are hugely successful. They work hard. They've got a vision. They, they are uh, uh, indomitable. You know, they, you can count on them. They're going to go for it. They've succeeded often beyond their fondest dreams. And yet they often feel lost and alone on that forgotten highway uh, that there's uh, something missing in their life that they've sacrificed a lot to get to that level, to that position in life. So uh, one of the, 
the methodology that I've learned and that we've worked with with, with over a million people involves uh, dealing with the whole person, with with uh, with everyone, uh, and and. Uh, there are three aspects to it in our work, and this is kind of the simplified version, but that what we all need to do is, first of all, to complete our past. You know, you can't change it. There's nothing you can do to change your past. It's behind you. But if you've got energy on it, blame, shame, regret, guilt, or even uh, uh, past success, that until you let go of it, you can't go forward. And really, people that are already quite successful have that same issue, by the way, but they're just very good at compartmentalizing it, at stuffing it, at, at getting it out of the way. And in a way, you can admire that and the fierceness that's behind that with many people. But it's still there. It affects hiring and, and firing and managing and loving and, and taking care of your family. It, it, it affects everything, that, all of that yeah. stuff from your past. Uh, the second piece is to learn to better tell the truth about your current reality. We all live in a story. We have a story about ourselves, about our strengths, our weaknesses, and, and um, who we are. Quite often, that story has little or no connection to reality. The Buddhists have a little different expression, but I like it. It's to develop a selfless regard for reality. In other words, to get the ego out of the way and see what's really true about us, about the people in our lives, about the circumstances, about our environment, about what we've created. And then if you've done those two things, if you've done some work on completing your past and shifting the energy on it to a, to a neutral or even a positive energy, if you have become better at telling the truth about your reality, about the people around you, about yourself, about your environment, you've created a space to choose your future. That your future is not bound up in your educational level. It's not bound up in uh, how you grew up. It's not bound up in your strengths or your perceived weaknesses. That you're just free to choose how you want to create the future. Uh, so those are, you know, those are easy words. The experience of it is not so easy. You know, the most commented online from my book is life is simple. It's not easy. And uh, uh, Jordan Peterson says it's tragic. The Buddhists uh, are kind of agree with that, you know, that all life is suffering. Well, that's our lives. So what are we going to do right. with that? That's the question. Right. And, uh, and there, for thousands of years, great teachers have taught that uh, uh, the answers. Life is actually pretty simple. It's just not easy. It's, it's right. not, the existentialists say life is hard and then you die. You know, they're kind of a right. severe way of looking at that. <laughs> but it's a choice, you know. Uh, right. Everything, right. Everything's a choice for us, Jeff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you touched on a couple things there that really I wrote down. And, you know, for anybody watching, and by the way, if you're picking this up on audio, and if, uh, about 10 minutes ago, Robert um, said, oh, you have that video, you have that picture. So we do stream the show, so you can always come back, uh, search in any kind of uh, player where videos show on the Big Ticket Life, and you'll find the episode, or you can just search the episode name, and you'll get the video to get a different experience with this show. But um, uh, so to go back to what you just wrapped up on, I love how you said complete your past. You know, like 
your past is your past. You can't change that. But I think so many people, they continue that own story in their mind about this thing in the past manifests to this thing in the future. And that thing in the future is only real in your own mind. Right? It's that, it's that story. You're, you're the only one telling yourself that story. No one else is. Um, so I really love that about completing this, the, your past. And then I think uh, I, I talk about this, about old, my, my frame of reference is um, new cuts don't equal old scars, right? This is that packing away of the stuff. And you said it affects hiring, it affects leadership, it affects your mood, it affects how you approach your day, how you approach an opportunity. Because that story we start to tell ourselves becomes this whole thing. And then we begin to go back in our minds, I think, about, well, it, it's just like that in the past. It's just like this time I was told I wasn't good enough. I was told I was going to fail. Uh, I was harmed, whatever that might be. And that old scar isn't a new wound. It's not being given by that employee. It's not being given by that prospect saying, no, it's just, it's just what it is. So that fierceness of packing it away and going forward, like you said, is good. But I think it can also be, I'd ask you, do you think it can also be if we don't learn how to complete your past? Again, I love that statement a lot. I think packing it away almost can be troublesome because it does come back up. It does manifest. Can you add to that, expand on that at all? Well, you know, it's a bit like having a backpack with 50 kilograms of, of lead in the backpack. Mm -hmm. You know, it's there, but it's, it's behind you, but you're carrying it. And mm, uh, so, love that. Uh, and most of us, uh, we're not talking about people that need deep psychological work and therapy. We're talking about the, <laughs> I love this expression. I stole it from someone else. That's the normally neurotic. You know, that the normally neurotic seems to define a lot of Western culture, quite frankly. <laughs> yep. and, uh, uh, for the normally neurotic, which includes me, uh, until we let go of all of that, oh, I don't think we can celebrate and and use this unique one of one that we are, the the life we were born to live, and which I define as an extraordinary life, and you define as a big ticket life. It's possible for all of us. Some of us have more barriers in the way; some have less. Uh, but we need to handle those. And then claim that life that that we were born to live. Uh, you know, I, um, I one of my big growth experiences, uh, an experience that changed my life, was divorce. And one of my friends described it as the divorce from hell. That's and by the way, that's one of the things that brought John Denver and I so close together as we went through that together. Our wives mm. were our best friends, and they. Uh, uh, left us in, in the same time period and, and you know, all of that was done kind of together. And, uh, you know, it was a really horrible experience for me. But what it meant was I, 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 there's a psychological thing called transference. So while I'm going through this, now my former wife, four feet, 11 inches tall, dark hair, very pretty, very alive, very uh, expressive, a, a great outgoing personality. So I go off to Hong Kong and uh, we had a contract worker, a, a woman from the U.S. who was coming to Asia and helping us retool some of our, our systems. And she had done a fantastic job. I had never met her. I knew about her. She's kind of famous in our industry. 
And I wanted to say thank you. So when I went to Hong Kong on a visit, uh, well, I had moved back to Aspen or moved to Aspen. And uh, I arranged for my uh, last, my first day, no, my last day in Hong Kong was her first day on one of her visits. So I arranged to have breakfast with her. And I'm in the car after the breakfast. Uh, uh, I'm in the car going to the airport. And the phone rings, and it's my managing director for Hong Kong, and he's yelling at me about how badly I've treated this woman, <laughs> that we are so grateful to. You could not have paid her enough money to do the amazing work she was doing for us. I want. I had the breakfast to say thank you, and he's yelling at me because I'm just be. I was just being a jerk with her. She was four eleven, dark hair. Oh, quality. <laughs> and I was totally unconscious that I was not seeing her. I was not with her. I was with the pain that I was going through mm. with my family and, and the, you know, losing the woman that I loved. And so that happens. And it usually happens unconsciously. And, and quite often we're not, we don't get busted like, like my managing director did. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, don't get confronted from it. Therefore, you don't learn anything. But I learned that I have to be, I have to be more aware of the pain that I'm storing, that's inside me subconsciously, and that leaks out into my life and how I handle with people around me, how I how I behave, how I see myself about all of those things. Uh, so when we talk about completing the past, it's another one of those simple and not easy things because we have to face up to our own personal responsibility that it's a new day, it's a new choice. It's in the next moment, it's a new day, it's a new choice. And yep. that, that our lives depend not on what happened in our past, but rather the choices that we're making today. Our choices about our, how we use our time, uh, about how we treat the people around us, about uh, how we handle the objections that come up from the world. You know, all of those things, that's a fresh moment to choose. The challenge, of course, is to let go of your past and be present to that choice and also to see it, to see that choice in the context and the filters of your vision of what you want to create with this life that we're gifted yep. with. Yeah. Yeah. You're actually like, I'm just letting you go because I'm taking it all in because I've been reading... Uh, and studying, you know, the concept of of being a stoic, stoic, stoicism, I guess would be the more appropriate term. And, you know, really, really judging ourselves and how we react, not uh, not to the moment, but to the outcome, right? Yes. Um, you know, I think I think a real applicable way to think about this for anybody watching, anybody listening, and you've got some great friends tuning in. Tara's been with us for most of the show. She might have had to run, but Bryce McKinley. Uh, I think is a friend of yours. Um, he's tuning in. Um, he says, love you, sir. And he's going to be reaching out to you later. So there you go. Um, but uh, I think a way to kind of put a nice little bow on what you just expanded on about how we react in a moment. And is this is this something that's legitimate or is it is it a manifestation, a transference of another problem is apply it to when you're driving down the road. If that person in front of you is going slow and you just want them to move over, how do you respond to that? You know, can you, can you have forgiveness that maybe that person, and I'm, I'm one, I need to check myself at times. 
Maybe that person just got fired. Maybe their kid's in trouble at school. Maybe, maybe they're making a life-changing decision to bring a child into their home and they're just wrapped up in their mind. Like that little moment, which we can, anybody listening and watching has experienced other drivers on the road being in their way, right? Um, we can, we can kind of look at how we, how we, judge ourselves in our response to that moment and not so much judgment of the other person. I think that's a way to put a little bow on that um, and and think about it. Think about what Robert just shared. But man, that last five minutes, so about 30, 33 minutes in or so, hit hit rewind on that and and listen to what Robert just shared. Fantastic. Just fantastic perspectives on that topic of transference. Loved it. Loved it. So you often uh, throughout your writings and teachings, you talk about interruptions. Uh, let's talk about that. Where, where'd you get that theme from and expand on? A lot of our work over the years has been uh, grounded in a reality, which is that we are driven. We make a lot of our choices unconsciously based upon our belief system. We have a belief about ourselves. We have a belief about other people. We have a belief about success and money, about our role in the world. Uh, we have beliefs about a lot of things, and we don't have to stop and think about everything. You know, the simple example is that uh, uh, a couple of months ago, I was in a supermarket. I, I turned into an aisle. Uh, there was a woman with three small children, and she is in breakdown. Uh, they're all, I would say, under seven years old. But the three, uh, I would guess, three-year-old uh, was just raging. He didn't mm. want to be there. He was not happy. He's knocking things off the shelf. She's yelling at him. You know, it's the kind of thing you see. The question, of course, is how do you respond to that? And that happens, that response happens in no time, it, with no thought. And it comes from your belief system. Uh, because what she did in that moment, just as I turned that corner, was she reached out, she grabbed him by, he was on the, on the floor, on the tile, and she reached down, grabbed him arm, half picked him up and swatted him on the butt. So how do you react? You know, if you have a belief that, Children should never be hit. That's one, that's one reaction you have, right? If you have a belief, I'm not, I, I'm not going to get involved. That's her life. You walk away. That comes from a belief, but it all happens again in no time. If you have a belief that I need to help. Uh, and by the way, I, I, I've had a lot of training in dealing with that kind of stuff because of Levi and Emily and all I learned through that. But in most cases, fixing her ain't it. You know, that just leads to problems, more problems. Um, so there's all kinds of things, that the ways that you could react. It's all belief system based. And uh, so we make a lot of our decisions uh, out of an unconscious state. So what we've taught for years is become more aware of your belief systems, hmm. of what you learned. And, and most of that's learned before you're eight years old. There's a lot of research done on that about right. how, who you are and how you show up in the world. When I look at what's my contribution at this point in my life is that uh, my contribution is to be a mirror, to be an interruption. So that, uh, you know, that, that executive that says, uh, 
well, things are pretty good around here, but poor me, my key people are leaving. I don't have anything to do with it. It's just that that's the environment and they're getting paid more somewhere else. And they've got a story about it. My job is to say, well, what's your role in it? Mm -hmm. To be that mirror, to be an interruption to the patterns that they've developed over time. And most of the time, those patterns brought good results at one point. And then they learn the wrong thing from it and repeat that pattern again and again and again. So uh, if I'm going to be valuable to my clients, my executive clients, it's to be that mirror, to be that interruption. You know, uh, Bryce just made a, a nice compliment, a nice comment. And, you know, he's just a brilliant guy. But our, our relationship, I think Bryce would agree that our relationship is based on me being an interruption to him mm -hmm. in, a, in a training that I did with, with some other executives. Uh, so that's my role in life, I, I believe. I believe that's, that's one of the, the gifts that God gave me. I didn't, uh, and yes, I've done some work to develop that gift, to deliver those messages in a way that has some kindness and compassion, some, uh, some skill to it. But that the, the main thing is to have the courage to take the risk of, of interrupting somebody that's already successful. You know, Brian right. being, uh, Bryce being a real example of, you know, already super successful guy. Uh, but what, he, well, just, just He's out of working. curiosity, what what industry, what niche is Bryce in? What's Bryce do? I'm sorry, what? What does uh, what's what industry is Bryce in? What does Bryce do? Oh, Bryce educates people about investing in real estate. Uh, okay. He's one of, he's one of uh, he was one of the most uh, successful educators in the automotive sales business forever, and then uh, personally got involved in investing in real estate. Learned a whole lot about it. He's one of those quick studies. And uh, today he runs programs for other people to show them how to be successful uh, with their investments. Uh, and, okay. and it's just brilliant. Fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the answer is is when leadership's in question of the result, uh, you know, you know, look in that mirror, you know, find that interruption, and really, you know, the the end result is it's time to lead lead differently, lead harder. It's not the people around you failing, it's you failing them, right? You know, just uh, uh, when people ask me for a five-minute answer that, you know, I could easily <laughs> turn it into a three-day seminar. Right. Uh, uh, you know, my first answer always is wake up. Just start noticing. Uh, mm -hmm. Develop a higher level of awareness of noticing because you are your own best trainer if you can get to your own truth. Uh, I'm, you know, mm. people that work, do work like me, uh, we just help you get to your truth. It's not our truth. That's not, that's not useful. <laughs> it's your life, your unique self that you've developed. But it's those patterns. You know, if you catch yourself saying, gee, I don't know why I did that again. Well, there's, a, there's been a lot of work done on why you did that again. So take yeah. advantage of that work. Take advantage of that knowledge uh, and find out what that pattern is, where it came from, and then you can make a choice. Do I want to continue that? Do I want to drop it? But for most people, they're unaware of the underlying belief system that drove the behavior. Until yeah. you're aware of it, you can't do anything about it. Uh, yeah. Of course, you have to take the next step, 
which is to take responsibility for it. And, you know, responsibility. Break it down mm-hmm. into two words and it becomes even more clear. Are you just in reaction to something that might have happened long ago or to the kind of person you're not comfortable being around, whatever? Or are you responding appropriately and responding through the filter called, what is the vision I want to create? What is the future that I want with this person, with this environment, with this company? And to be acting from that, not acting from an old pattern, an old behavior. Yeah, I think I think our conversation is extremely timely, especially on this point of reacting. Because if you look at so much of the inputs in a person in a leader's day from society, from social media, uh, from media in general, from maybe their employees, family members, it, it just seems like the whole algorithm of life today is to get you to react to something. In three seconds, here's a statement, you react and make a decision. Join a camp, put a uniform on, you know, red, blue, whatever, but it's, it, it, it's all about What's your response? Really, what's your reaction when really it should be an understanding of what's my first response to this? Why? And then is that the best response for the situation? And then do I even need to respond? Does it even matter? Do I need to form an opinion on this? Uh, Probably not in a lot of cases. But I think, yeah, stepping out of that reactionary role because the more you just are triggered like that, response, I'm sorry, react, react, react. I think almost the more like lizard brain animal-like people can become. Is that that a fair statement? It's really fair. And the answer, of course, is uh, a simple one and a really difficult one. Take a deep breath. Mm -hmm. You know, (laughs) uh, this magic ability that we have that the animal kingdom does not have You know, the amphibians don't have it. The plants don't have it. It's the ability to choose, but you can only choose if you're present. And the way to get present, it's been taught for thousands of years, particularly in the East, particularly in the meditative uh, community. And that is take a deep breath, maybe take two or three. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, and if you're, if you're here on Robert's, what Robert's saying right now about take a deep breath, you know, the skeptic would say, we're humans, breathing is essential, it's innate, it's instinctual. Well, there's an entire industry of breathing, like the breath industry, breathing yes. coaches, books, products, apps, doodads to attach to your ear and a lot here. Like, we are so broken as a human species, even though we have the ability to take that deep breath and step back, we're so utterly broken that in a whole industry, you talk about sorting opportunity, a whole industry has come in to say, I've got the breathing fix for you. And it's like biologically programmed right here in our lungs <laughs> to work. But that's how far away we are. Uh, <laughs> kind of funny. Kind of funny. So as we, as we approach the top of our time together, I want to hear how you connected. Like, So what was the first meeting, the first connection with John Denver? You guys obviously had a had a lot of connection together. Your families came together. Uh, unfortunately, your 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 families went away, went separate together. But you had a, a close relationship, and you also uh, are a big fan of a charity that he started called Planet2020.org. So, 
let's kind of wrap up on on the uh, the Rocky Mountain High, so to say. <laughs> Sorry, that was a terrible pun. Sorry, um, but let's let's kind of wrap up our time talking about that relationship. Uh, look, uh, it started with I was a resident in Japan. We're building our business. We're having these big seminars, thousands of people. And we start using John Denver's music. Uh, we used a lot of music because a lot of our training, uh, the entry into the self is through the emotional body. And music is a great tool for entering uh, people's emotions. So, he, you know, he had a song called I Want to Live. And, uh, you know, the, the hope of every newborn baby and, and the hope of every adult, right? So at key points in the seminar, we'd use this music. Illegally, admittedly, I admit it, uh, arrest me, <laughs> you know. Uh, right. So uh, I admire it. And then we, I, we still weren't making any money. We were so broke all the time, uh, investing every bit of revenue back into the program. And John Denver came to Japan in the late 70s, and he sold out the Budokan, uh, 17,000 seats, for six shows in five days. And in one of those shows, Robert was up in the rafters and the cheapest possible ticket, uh, admiring how this guy came out. No lasers, no, no pretty girls, no flashing lights. He came out with his guitar and his band and entertained for two and a half hours straight. And, and Japanese that don't speak English are singing along to his songs in English. And it was really impressive. But, you know, I, I saw I was a fan. I became a fan. And later, I published a book called One World, One People, uh, a photo essay. And I, I wrote the, the verbal essays. Nobody reads them. <laughs> the, the pictures are stunning. Uh, one of my visions, my dreams, is to get that book back in print because it sold out. But mm. uh, I sent a copy to John Denver. I didn't know him. Uh, I networked around, found an address, sent it off to him. And uh, I didn't hear from him, but I didn't expect to. It's a gift. You know, you just give the gift. And then I uh, end up back in the U.S., and I'm living in Denver, Colorado, and I'm building a, a corporate culture change company there. And one of our trainers came to me and said, I'm involved in this nonprofit called Windstar Foundation. John Denver's effort to create a sustainable future includes this foundation, and uh, the foundation's a mess. Will you help? So I said, yeah, if I can, I will. And that led to me attending a board meeting. So... Uh, the board meeting went on for about three hours, and then John turned to me, that was the first time I physically met him, turned to me and he said, well, Robert, uh, you know, you're supposed to know something about organizations and uh, what's your opinion about what we're doing here? And it was one of those moments, Jeff, where, you know, your life passes before your eyes, where I go, I know how to duck that question. I know how to be a nice guy and get out of here. Or mm -hmm. do I tell the truth? Uh, and what you I was later was, do am I the interruption that's needed here? So I took a deep breath and I said, you just spent three hours debating whether or not to have chickens on the Windstar property in Aspen. Uh, that's not the role of a board of directors. And right. it was dead silent in the room. And I'm thinking, well, that's the end of that relationship. <laughs> <laughs> and... Also, I saw something that I've seen working with other organizations. Every eye in the room turned to John. That's a really bad sign. 
when you have mm-hmm. to wait to see how the leader reacts to being confronted. I'm not confronting, not confronting him, I'm confronting the whole room. And I thought, well, okay, the dysfunction here is obvious, but this, my life is about to end in terms of Windstar and John Denver. And he burst into laughter, just uproariously. And it was real, you know? And then you find the people in the room go, ah, 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 you know, that kind of <laughs> fake right, laugh. Yeah, that uncomfortable laughter, like, is he on board or against? Am I about to be fired or what? <laughs> <laughs> it was great. And then after the meeting, uh, uh, John invited me to his home. And in his home, he had a uh, like a mezzanine over the living room where uh, it was his library and where a grand, they had a grand piano there. And uh, all the books, you know, all the books are on the shelves, of course, right? Only one book was out and it was on the piano. And it was One World, One People, my book. And he, ha- he, hadn't, he hadn't connected the two. Oh, wow. I mean, nobody, okay. cared, nobody cares who published and wrote the essays for a photo j- essay because hmm. 99% of the attention's on the pictures, right? So I pointed out that that's my book. And that's the beginning of our relationship. He recruited me onto the board of Windstar. He persuaded me to move to Aspen. We were actually going to move to Vail, uh, Aspen's competitive ski resort. Right. And uh, so that's how. And then, you know, we started doing things together. We vacationed together. We celebrated Christmas in the barn next to my house. Uh and all of those kinds of things, and uh, and then <laughs> and then we experienced divorce together. So uh, yeah. we had a lot of lot a lot of uh, shared experiences. And, uh, I love him. I miss him. Uh, he made a huge contribution to my life, and I like to think I made a a little bit of a contribution to his. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, listen. The handwritten thing you see right there came from the training that we did for the Windstar board and staff where John was a participant. And we asked Mm -hmm. people to make a a statement of their purpose in life. And that's what he wrote. That's also on his memorial stone, which I've always been very proud of. Uh, I am a song. I live to be sung. I sing with all my heart. Pretty Mm -hmm. much captures John's life. Yeah, I think so. What a powerful story. Great connection. Glad you could have that friendship. You know, it's just, and it goes to show that, you know, the people that we uh, tell ourselves are way, way up here. They do need a friend. They do need somebody to talk to. They need somebody to rely on. They need somebody to show them, uh, hey, maybe you are in need of an interruption. You need, need to look in the mirror there a little bit. I've loved our time together here. So if anybody else aspire, we had a handful of people commenting throughout. Dennis said a good choice of time to learn and listen. Thank you. I'm honored by that comment. I'm honored to have spent time with you to bring that uh, impact out in somebody. So if they want to connect more with you, uh, where do they go? Obviously, it's in the show notes, but maybe you're driving, listening to this as a show. Robert, why don't you tell them how they can connect with you? Uh, my website's the best way, therobertwhite.com. And uh, there's some resources there that are free, including uh, uh, registration for my weekly email, An Extraordinary Minute. Uh, I've been doing it for over 10 years and thousands of people read it every every week. So it's a way to stay connected. You hit reply at any time and you reach me. Uh, 
uh, and I respond. Uh, so that's the, that's the best way. You know, my daughter, Megan, teases me that I'm at this advancing age, I've become a book salesman, but it's true. So buy my book, Living an Extraordinary Life. It's available on Amazon and Kindle and all that, and, or a signed copy on my, you can get a signed copy by buying it on my website. Uh, get in touch. Uh, let's find out if we're supposed to do something together or just be friends. Yep. Love it. Love it. So therobertwhite.com, free resources there. You can carry on John's mission for the environment and the earth with planet2020.org in the pre-show. Robert said, if you give us a dollar, we'll plant a tree. So that's what they do over there. And uh, if you want an autographed copy of Robert's book, buy it through his site. All right. Uh, Amazon's easy, but you can connect with Robert through a uh, tactile, personal way, buying his book autographed for you right from his site. So, Robert, I, this has been really great. Uh, I always enjoy these interviews and um, had a lot of fun talking with you today, for sure. Thank you. Jeff, uh, I'm uh, I'm delighted. I'm glad if it was some contribution to your life and the life of your listeners and viewers. And uh, obviously, uh, you're doing this as a labor of love. I can feel that. And, and yep. uh, I appreciate that. I appreciate you. Yeah, thank you. Well, feeling is mutual. I'm, I'm on that uh, podcast high right now. So we're going to wrap up. And um, man, we'll see... Uh, See everybody next week on The Big Ticket Life. Take care. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode of The Big Ticket Life. You've heard from another amazing guest living their own big ticket life, and now it's time to live yours. First, I'd love for you to take me up on my free gift to you. Find your gift at gift.thebigticketlife.live. That's gift.thebigticketlife.live. See, all your life you've been told what is and what is impossible by the loudest voices from the cheapest seats. It's time to finally do life and business on your terms. Sure, you've heard similar things, but without clarity on what can be done, it's easy to have your customers, employees, maybe even partners and your spouse keep you from truly living a big ticket life. My big ticket methods shift you into that investor seat in your business, away from commodity and away from competition into a market of one so you can finally live your own big ticket life. So my gift to you is for you to book your discovery call today where we'll uncover first the Chivo behaviors, those chief everything officer behaviors that hold you back and why moving into the investor seat in your own business is critical. Two, we'll uncover the premium position that's up for grabs right now in your market that you're missing out on. And three, which big ticket methodologies are just waiting to be dropped into your business to explode your sales and profits. So again, thanks for listening to this episode. I'd love for you to take action right now. Accept this gift. Book your call. Go to gift.thebigticketlife.live. Again, that's gift.thebigticketlife.live.